Last time, uh, we talked about the fact that Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, is seeking to correct faulty thinking and assumptions that have slipped into the church there in Corinth. And he does this, he does not do this piecemeal. But as Jonathan put it last week, he's going back to the foundation. This week we see how the foundation, that is Christ, and Christ crucified is not just a foundation, but is also a stumbling block, a stumbling stone. But before we turn to our text, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you as people who have seen the wisdom that is in Jesus Christ, the wisdom that is in your Holy Spirit. Sometimes we forget, sometimes we drift away, sometimes we move more toward our cultural norms and expectations. So Father, we pray that you will cause us to lay all of those assumptions before you this morning, and that we will know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Your very power and your very wisdom. Lord, help me this morning. I'm a fallen creature speaking infallible word from your word. But my words are not infallible. Give me a measure of fullness of your spirit that I may communicate something of your truth. And where I err, please let my words fall to the ground. But may we have, having heard your word, leave this place changed by your spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In both college and seminary, I sought to make extra money uh, by keeping kids after school through school programs. Uh, When I was in St. Louis, I worked with the YMCA. When I was in Chattanooga, I worked after college with my former elementary school. And it was a fun job because you got to just play around with kids, play board games with kids, play outside games with kids. But on rainy days, you went inside and you watched a movie and you spent time talking with your coworkers because that was before the advent of the smartphone. We had to talk to each other. We couldn't just scroll through social media. And I was a little bit of an oddity and I was a little bit of a conversation piece for this reason. They knew I was going to go to seminary to be a minister And that caused a lot of questions. Because who did that? Was I going to be a priest? No, I wasn't going to be a priest. And I had to explain these things to them. And I remember one particular rainy day, we were in the room, several groups, several group leaders, watching a movie, and we sat in the back and talked. Me and a coworker I didn't really get to see very often. And she was asking all these questions, and it was such a wonderful time of of explaining the gospel to her. Um, But there was a third or a second co-worker there of mine, and her disposition was sour. And as I came to the end of talking about what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it, she said this. I grew up Catholic, and I don't go to church anymore. I think it's all ridiculous. How could God kill his son and ask you to drink his blood and and that be the way he saves the world? 
It's ludicrous. I don't think I've ever experienced that kind of raw, visceral reaction to that point. And I know, I'm sure what I said was not eloquent. And I'm sure that what I said (laughs) probably wasn't helpful. But it just struck me at that moment that those are probably some questions I grew up wrestling with when I was in the Bible, you know, growing up in the Bible Belt, but I never said out loud. But then I recognized that on the other side of salvation, on the other side of faith, what looked like some barbaric story to her made absolute sense to me. I could see it. I could see the love that the Father had for us through the sacrifice, but she was completely missing it. Why? She lacked faith. She did not have the Holy Spirit. And that, that's a story I think of when I read these verses from 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, whichever you, you prefer. 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul tells us that the act of the crucifixion is the very bedrock of our faith. It is both a foundation stone and a stumbling block. The Greek word here is scandalon. It's the word from which we get our word scandal. And without faith, the cross seems foolish at best, and a scandal at worst. But by faith through the Holy Spirit, it takes on great meaning as Christ shows us the love of God. And his shame, his public shame, means the end of ours. Paul writes in Romans 9.33, referencing Jesus as the scandal on it, and referencing Isaiah 28.16, And he says, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But like many of you here, the Corinthians had already stumbled over the scandal on, and it had brought them to their knees and to faith. But their assumption in ours is that once we have placed our faith in Jesus, the scandal on will never cause us to stumble again. But that's not true. The Corinthians are running quickly toward appropriating worldly wisdom into their hearts and into their practice. And Paul sets before them once again the cross of Christ so that it will once again trip them up and cause them to fall. And whatever faulty beliefs that they're holding on to will shatter at the foot of the cross. And the same is true of us. We're justified by Christ and declared to be saints in Christ. And the process of sanctification is ongoing. Just like the Corinthians, we have so many default assumptions and presuppositions that are perfectly aligned with the kingdom of this world, but are not necessarily aligned with the kingdom of God. And they're elusive. They're the operating, of our, operating system of our soul. 
And if the operating system of our soul is faulty, then it's in, it's in need of ongoing reformatting. Do we truly believe that Jesus and the operating system of the Holy Spirit will never cause us to stumble and fall? I think that's where the Corinthians have gotten to. And, and the old operating system was going unchecked and leading to division and to strife. And that's what it can do when it manifests itself in us. And so in this passage, we see two major areas where the kingdom of this world stumbles over Christ and his kingdom. And these are areas where the Corinthians, in the setting of their own culture, are stumbling. And this is where we also stumble in our culture. So today, as we look at the text, we see that the cross of Christ causes us to stumble in order that, first, our views of wisdom might be shattered. And second, that our views of power might be shattered. So first, the cross of Christ causes us to stumble in order that our views of wisdom might be shattered. In verse 22, Paul reminds the Corinthians that the cross of Christ is absurd to Greeks because they seek wisdom. And wisdom is a good thing, right? Well, certainly biblical wisdom is, but Greek wisdom was a little different. They're not the same thing. See, Greek wisdom centered on finding right answers. Greek wisdom centered on deifying reason. From philosophy, we get law, we get polity, we get science. But those philosophical systems can only take us so far. Even in our modern world, if science could understand every single reason why everything happens, cause and effect in this universe, they've missed the one great reason for it all. And that is a relationship with the eternal and living God. As you can know all the facts in the world and not know God. Similarly, those of us who love theology, and theology is a good thing just as much as science is a good thing. But even if we knew everything there was to know about, about God, it is not the same thing as knowing him in relationship. Unless we doubt that, James confronts Christians of his day by saying, look, you believe God is one, that's great. Hey, the demons believe that and they shudder. They know it, but they do not know it salvifically. They do not know God in an eternal, redemptive relationship. So what Paul is highlighting here is that we can know a lot and it can puff us up, but we can completely miss biblical wisdom. And what is biblical wisdom? Biblical wisdom is the lining of our hearts via relationship with the living God to the eternal truths of God. And while biblical wisdom is certainly not anti-intellectual, it transcends cognitive ability and is rooted in the operations of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. You see this when Jesus extols the faith of a child. You see this when the people of Israel are shocked that ignorant Galileans are speaking deep truths. It is the truth of how the Corinthians came to Jesus themselves. And he reminds them of this in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Now, that doesn't mean that they're dumb as a stick. 
that doesn't mean that they were ignorant hicks. It means that in the meritocracy that was Greece, where everyone was displaying their public knowledge for acclaim and accolade, these people weren't considered viable competitors. However, he goes on to say, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. These non-competitors could at times, by the Spirit, confound the sophists, confound the philosophers with the depth of the wisdom that they, as simple people, uttered. And it caused them, and sometimes it causes us, to stumble backwards when we experience biblical wisdom from unlikely sources. Let me give you a story that, in which I experienced biblical wisdom. When I was in college, uh, I went to a state school, and I was taking philosophy and religion classes. And if you think that that is, a, uh, that is the crucible, and it is difficult, it absolutely is. And by the second year, I was feeling it. I was feeling the struggle as my faith was being challenged, not just monthly, but weekly, daily, being assaulted. And I was bruised, and I was battered, and so I came to the conclusion that I needed to leave secular school and go to Christian school. I needed to go lick my wounds, get over it, and move on. And so I began to share that, what I thought was wisdom, with people. And they were all saying, that's a good idea. I think that that, that, that could be wonderful for you. Go get that biblical training and uh, uh, before you go to seminary and um, and then I encountered one of my friends from the Baptist Student Union. His name was Jeff. Now, Jeff was not uneducated. Jeff was a very smart man. His persona of the pickup truck driving Tennessee redneck, who you could find often just joking around with people and giving them wet willies, did not lead me to believe that he was the guy I really wanted to go to to consult biblical wisdom-wise. But he and I found ourselves sitting together, and I shared my plan with him. And I will never forget that moment because it was life-changing for me. Because this Tennessee redneck who always complained about ignorant North Georgia drivers, that's us, by the way, when he spoke to me, I was so convinced that what I was hearing was the voice of God was the voice of the Spirit. It may have had a country twang, but it was the wisdom of God. Because he said to me, he said, Zach, ain't nothing wrong with Christian college. God calls many people to go to Christian colleges. I just don't think you're one of them. So you could go there. You can do that. You can, you can go lick your wounds and... All of that, but I think what God has for you is to remember that adversity is part of our struggle as Christians. And that what He's calling you to is to endure here so you can help other people. I was I was dumbfounded. Because what was coming out of his mouth just hit me right in the, at my heart level. And I knew that no matter how many of these other people just kind of nodded their head and agreed with me, that he was right. He threw the scandal on in front of me that, that said, adversity 
is not a bad thing. It is a thing that causes us to grow in Christ. Don't forget it. And I stumbled over it, and I fell to my knees. And what was shattered was my own worldly wisdom, and what I gained was biblical wisdom. I bet that many of you can point to a time in your life that somebody did that for you. That you were so excited about something that you wanted to do. That you were excited about your wise plan. And someone came face to face with you and shared what you knew was biblical wisdom. Paul sets that before the Corinthians in in 18 through 20. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will shatter it. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, Corinthians, you know this. You have seen biblical wisdom trump worldly wisdom. You've seen it. Don't you remember how God showed you the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit and how it opened your eyes and destroyed the wisdom that you were experiencing in the culture? How it took the air out of puffed-up knowledge. Where are the wise? Where are the scribes? Where are the debaters of the age? They're perishing. But you're living. So don't live by the principles of the perishing. In every single one of us, the principles of the perishing, worldly wisdom, constantly flow through our hearts and our minds. And those principles often tell us what we want to hear. And we conform our faith to that cultural expectation. Now, don't hear me saying that you throw reason out the window. Paul is appealing to them by wisdom and by reason. But we're not called like the Greeks to deify reason because our faith doesn't always align with what is reasonable. Reason would tell us to respond to personal attacks with our own personal attacks. That is not what faith tells us. Reason, and specifically Aristotle, would say that the common welfare overshadows the individual. But God has us championing even the smallest voice of the unborn child. There are countless things that reason tells us that are antithetical to our faith. Some are just more culturally and personally accepted by us than others. But we must let the scandal of the cross trip us up and shatter that which we hold that is not consistent with the kingdom of God. Or as verse 30 says, And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, the scandalon keeps tripping us up so that our fleshly wisdom will fall and the Spirit can give us true wisdom. But it isn't just the area of wisdom where they and we stumble. The cross of Christ is not only what causes us to stumble in order that our views of wisdom might be shattered, but also because uh, it, it stumbles and it causes us to stumble and fall so that it can show us what true power is and that, that our views of power might be shattered. Go back to verse 22. Paul says, For Jews demand signs. Now, 
Some of you might say, well, doesn't the Holy Spirit make his advent known through signs and wonders? Yes. Didn't Jesus say that the sign of Jonah, the resurrection, will be given to people? Yes. Weren't the healings and miracles of Jesus a sign? Yes. But those sort of signs weren't what the Jews were looking for. What the Jews were looking for were signs of might and power and conquest. They wanted a Messiah that was going to destroy Rome, kick out the invaders, and reestablish the kingdom. They were signs of exerting power and overthrowing Romans. And that sort of thinking, which the disciples grew up in, permeated their understanding of what redemption was. And there they stood on the Mount of Olives. This is 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And they're looking over the city of Jerusalem. And perhaps, just perhaps, they're sitting there thinking, okay, this is a great place to see the fireworks happen. Jesus is getting ready to call down some fire. He's going to destroy the wicked in Jerusalem and he's going to rebuild his kingdom. And they're up on this mountain. They're looking over and... Fireworks haven't started yet. So one disciple nudges the other one and says, okay, who's going who's to draw the short straw here? Who's going to ask him the question when the fireworks show begins? Somebody, we don't know who, drew the short straw and acts because they ask this question. At this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' head starts shaking from side to side. They watched Jesus overpower death. They put up with his hard-to-understand teaching just so they could get to this moment, just so they could see Jesus conquer and take over. But that's not his plan. He's not going to overthrow Rome, and he's not going to depose the Edomite king, Herod, and take the kingdom back for Israel. That might be how it plays out in storybooks, but that is not what Jesus plans. His plan is not... For the Romans to die, his plan is for the disciples to die. And they were missing it. Once again, the scandal shattered their assumptions and expectations. He told them that his agenda was that they be witnesses to him. That the kingdom was going to come in, in him working through them, not him going out as a conquering king. They would have to overcome their fears and their prejudices as they reached Judea, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. And in many cases, they'd have to lay down their lives. And they'd have to approach the task with humility. They would have to follow the way of the cross. He shatters their expectations. He would not be directly bringing the kingdom. He would work in and through them. And Paul teaches the Corinthians in verses 29 through, uh, 26 through 29 the same thing. Biblical power doesn't come from exceptional people. It comes from an exceptional God working through ordinary people. That is the power of the cross. Not I, but Christ. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world 
to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Not I, but Christ in me. The biblical evidence shows a God that chose unexceptional people in order to show that he is exceptional. Consider Abraham. Consider Isaac and Jacob. Stammering Moses. Israel as a whole, as the lowliest of the people. David, a shepherd boy. The disciples, fishermen, tax collectors. And Paul got to experience this firsthand when he watched that little punk Stephen lecturing Israel about the Messiah. And he held those cloaks because this guy was too good to get himself splattered with blood because he was the cream of the crop. He was excelling in Judaism, and he didn't want to stain his hands with the blood of Stephen. But he watched, and he gave his consent, and he heard the testimony. And Stephen loses his life while saying the words, Father, forgive them, just like his Lord. It made no sense to Paul, who had made a name for himself, But then he saw this man lay it all down and he experienced real power. And he saw things differently on the road to Damascus. And God changed that murderer and that persecutor into a preacher of the gospel. And he reminds the people of Corinth of that, that God didn't choose them because they were exceptional. He chose them because Christ might show his exceptional nature in and through them. He didn't choose them because they had a power of their own. He would display the power of the Spirit in and through them. See, the cross throws everything that we believe in our culture about power out the window. You must lose your life to gain it. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And the meek... The meek shall inherit the earth. Biblical power is an exceptional God, not only working through ordinary people, but working through ordinary people in humility. In this world, it is not reasonable to not grasp for power, but this Jesus, who was himself God, refused to grasp what was his and what belonged to him so he could humble himself to death on the cross. And he lives in us by his spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit replicates that sort of self-sacrifice. He replicates that sort of humility. How? The cross, that most powerful of scandalons, causes us to stumble in our pride so that we may fall to our knees again and again. That we might remember that if the new covenant is about anything, it's about living in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And Jesus frequently uses our weakness to remind us that if we must live, that we must live in utter dependence. Do you want a day where you can, apart from God, say, look at all I did for you? Ain't gonna happen. Because it says in in chapter one that Jesus will sustain us to the end. Jesus, not us, will sustain us to the end. 
And perhaps their own success had driven them to pride, which is why Paul reminds them in, in 2, 1 through 5, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you to the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Any version of Christianity that leaves out humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit and trades that for just following a bunch of principles is not Christianity. Christianity is a dependence upon the Spirit of God working in and through us. And all of these things, Paul says, is where our faith should rest. Back in 2012, uh, there was a man named uh, Carlton Tinker. I don't know if you know who Carlton Tinker was. Carlton Tinker's claim to fame happened in 2012 after the 2011 victory of Alabama over LSU. LSU seemed to be this unstoppable force that year. That was the year of Honey Badger. Remember Honey Honey Badger? And they stopped them. It was 21-0 in the championship game, and they were awarded the crystal football. And that sat there on their table in their trophy room. And Carlton Tinker was the father of Carson Tinker, who was that year drafted as a football player for Alabama. And on, on A-Day, they're touring the trophy room. And Carlton Tinker's claim to fame is that he tripped over the table. And that $30,000 crystal football hit the table, rolled, hit the ground, and shattered. That's a woe moment. (laughs) Initially, his name was not released to the press, and then he finally owned up to it. All that pride, I don't care. If there are Bama fans out there, I'm so sorry. All that pride of the Bama organization rolled off that table and hit the ground and shattered. A fitting image. What do we hold that we think is valuable apart from Christ? Are we holding on to our own understanding? Have we confused scholasticism with wisdom? Have we become sold out to the reasonable ideas of culture that are antithetical to our faith? Perhaps in our versions of power, we have regarded exceptional people over the unexceptional. Perhaps we are here with a misguided view of leadership that doesn't include our our laying down our lives figuratively and realistically and actually. Perhaps we've forgotten that God calls us to humble reliance. When the scandal on trips us up, those prized trophies roll off that table and smash. Are you going to mourn over the shards? Or are you going to bend our knees in faith and say, thanks be to God for reminding me that it is not about 
scholastic wisdom and brute force and power, but it is about biblical wisdom and the power of the cross. Where are you this morning? Are you mourning or are you praising? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so prize these assumptions and these beliefs that sit on trophy tables before us. But if we are yours, you are so good to us by tripping us up and letting us experience the shattering of those false beliefs, just like you're speaking to the Corinthians. Speak to our hearts today. Let us lay those things at the foot of the cross. Let us lay the shards at the foot of the cross that we may be open-handed to receive biblical wisdom through spiritual power. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.